0: Well, as we consider what it means to be citizens of a different kingdom, there's something that we have to come to terms with as we start this new series this morning. And what it is is this. We live in a divided moment, do we not? A moment that feels like the intensity and fervor has continued to build where it feels like an eruption constantly. In 2018, Ben Sass wrote a book called Them, why we hate each other, and how, we, how to heal. A very intriguing and well-written book. I just want to read a couple of quotes from him, because I think it's particularly pressing. He says, right now, partisan tribalism is statistically higher than any point since the Civil War. Why? It's certainly not because our political discussions are more important It's because the local and the human relationships that anchored political talk have shriveled up. Alienated from each other and uprooted from places that we call home, we are reduced to shrieking. He goes on to say that free speech and the ability to tolerate offense are the hallmarks of a free and an open society. And when one half of the nation demonizes the other half, tendrils of resentment reach out and strangle whatever charitable impulses remain in us. What Sass is arguing is that in a time and a place where we feel increasingly divided from one another and separated from community, that we begin to listen to one another in a way that is uncharitable a way that thinks about them as opposed to us, and it causes the tendrils of resentment to to choke out the ability to really hear from one another. We are quickly offended and want to silence those that we consider to, to not have an informed view or not to agree with us. And this This reality that Sass was putting his finger on in 2018 has only intensified in 2020 in the midst of the COVID season and navigating our relationships via screens, being separated from one another, and then layering over that the intensity of the moment, the way that we think about wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. You you can watch these viral videos of people in Walmarts stomping their feet and yelling because this is is such a moment of intensity in the way that we view everything that is being fed to us. Whether it's masks and then you layer onto it a, a moment of such racial intensity for us as a country. And the ways that people are viewing the information and the data and the realities of what is unfolding all of a sudden causes us to, to find ourselves into camps and categories where we're constantly thinking about them. And we're thinking about them in a way that is very uncharitable and unable to have the conversation. So much so that when we watch the most recent presidential debate this last week, we, there, there actually has to be a mute on the microphones, so that we can hear one another out. What we see in our potential highest leaders in the country is representative of where we are as a society, that that there's a certain sense in which someone has to be muted just for us to be willing to sit and listen and not talk over them and assume the worst about the other. And so my question in a moment like the one that we're living in is how Is Christian community distinct from the world now? How are we we different? And what I'd like for us to consider over the next four weeks is that it's not that we agree totally on everything. What's going to be distinct about Christian community is not that we have the exact same views on the most contentious issues of the day. It's not that we're monolithic in the way that we think but rather that we are a grace-saturated Jesus community that is drawn together by our places of disagreement. We don't fracture in those places. That we're going to talk about what does it look like to be citizens of a, of a different kingdom. And to kick off this series, I want to think about, with you and, and with the scriptures, I want us to think about how Jesus forges his community. And what we are going to see is that a Jesus community shatters expectations because his focus is on a different kingdom. You see, our expectations, particularly our cultural expectations, our political expectations, they are shattered consistently when we are a part of a Jesus community because he is not focused on this world. He is not focused on kingdoms of this world, on nation states, and on elections within this world. He is focused on a different kingdom. And all of those conversations happen in a way that is submitted to his kingdom focus. And so when we are a part of a Jesus community, it will shatter our expectations. And in order to explore that together, I want us to to pay attention to the moment where Jesus was naming the leadership for his original movement the place where he named the 12 apostles out of the sea of disciples. And in this moment, I think we're going to learn something about the way that Jesus is engaging in a movement, the way that he is leading his community and the way that he forges it. And so I'd like to direct your attention to Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. And just before we read those verses together, permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. It says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. We live in a moment where there is a lot of chatter and a lot of confusion. It's hard to find the true line in the midst of it all. We as a people have been gifted with God's word to shape our souls and to give us direction. We would be really, really wise to pay attention this morning. Luke 6 verses 12 to 16. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples, and he chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. In these verses, what we see is Jesus naming his leadership team as he is starting to initiate his public ministry as he's starting this movement that will be a, a global kingdom movement, swelling and crossing the, the whole of the globe. And in this naming of his initial leadership team, we glean some, some truths that, that help us understand the way that a Jesus community is distinct in the world the ways that it shatters our expectations because of his kingdom focus. The first way that just leaps off the page that that a Jesus community shatters expectation is that a Jesus community is purposefully on the margins. It is purposefully situated on the margins of power, purposefully on the edges, not central, Because Jesus is not trying to lay hold of central political power. He's actually operating from the margins. Now, what do I mean by that? Jesus went up on the mountain and he prayed all night with God, wrestling with God about this critical decision. Who is going to be my central leadership team? That when I someday ascend to the right hand of the Father, this will be the team that I'm leaving to provide leadership for my people in an ongoing way. And he comes down from the mountain. And what we know at this point is that Jesus has scores, if not hundreds of disciples who are committed to him and following him. And he comes down from the mountain, having been with God all night long, and he walks into this group of, of scores or hundreds of disciples. And out of them, he names 12 who will be apostles. So one important note is that disciple literally means learner. Apostle literally means sent one. And so out of the group of students, he's going to name some that are going to represent him to the world, who are going to be sent on his behalf. And what is so stunning is that he selects 12 rather unimpressive, ordinary men. We know that at this point, Jesus had some Pretty impressive followers that by the end of his ministry, we'll realize that there are politically connected and powerful people like Joseph of Arimathea that are following him. they are rather wealthy and prominent men like Lazarus that are deeply devoted to him. We don't know who all is in this group of disciples, but what we know is that Jesus had a wide range of people that were committed to him throughout his ministry. But when it comes time to naming the key leaders of the movement that he is initiating, he he grabs a a group of men that are untrained, mostly uneducated. Most of them stink like fish because they've been out fishing throughout the night. You, You see, This is an unexpected selection if what Jesus wants to be about is political power. And what we'll find in the course of his ministry is that everybody wants him to be about political power, and he refuses at every turn. He is positioning his movement on the margins. He says that ultimately his people are going to to operate from the edges of power, not from the central of power. And this is actually true for for Jesus' community for a full three centuries after his life, his death, resurrection, and ascension. That these apostles who lead on Jesus' behalf continue to lead from the margins and they lead as an oppressed people. Many of them, all but John, going to their death, proclaiming Jesus as king. All but John and and Judas Iscariot, of course. And, And the The leadership that they raised up similarly were oppressed and beaten and killed and martyred. And this held true for for 300 years that the church exploded onto the scene. And as it has been famously said, it was the blood of the martyrs that was the seed of the church. Because the leadership of the church was operating from a place of political weakness, of oppression, of not grasping at power, but serving from the edges of society. And all of that changed, a little bit of a history lesson, all of that changed in 312 AD when Constantine conquered at Milvian Bridge. He united Rome and he became the leader of the known world and he conquered in the name of Christ after having a a vision and a a Christian conversion and he baptized the world at the tip of the sword. That all of a sudden, power and the gospel were running in the same tracks, and it's been debated, is it the best or the worst thing that ever happened to the gospel? That it, it created space for there to be some structure and for, for, there to be, for some of our, our initial kind of creeds to be formed because there was not a, just blanket oppression over the church anymore. But what happened was a 1,700-year hangover that we're still groggy from where power and the gospel became aligned, that now all of a sudden political power and the gospel were married. And when that happens, the gospel actually is is limited. It's altered. It shrinks our hopes because now all of a sudden the gospel becomes this thing that our gospel hope is bound up with the hope of a nation, the hope of a political power, because it's, it's there where we have our prominence and our ability to influence in the world. And we begin to think that this world will deliver our hope and political power will be the means to lay hold of it. This was known as Christendom. And Christendom existed for, for many, many years. But as a result, it actually led to the Dark Ages and the loss of the beauty and the power of the gospel itself because a people lost sight of what most, was most important. I say all that to say this. The first note that shatters our expectations is that Jesus is positioning his followers on the margins. This means we have to reject political primacy. If we are going to believe this, we reject political primacy. That's a phrase that Tim Keller used in a a sermon in July of 2001, talking about how are we to relate to politics. He said, we must reject political primacy. And I think that this is what Jesus is doing here. Ultimately, our identity is as exiles. So, So what does this mean for us? We are citizens of a different kingdom, not of this world. We are exiled from home. Our hope is distant and far from us. This means that our hope and our joy is not dependent on the outcome of November 3rd. The, brothers and sisters, if you have gotten to the point where you think, I don't know what's going to happen if, if my candidate loses. If when you receive the results from this upcoming election, if it causes you to come undone in despair or to be elated in joy, I think we, have begun, we, we are still buying the lie that Christendom was selling to us. The first way that a Jesus community shatters expectations is, as Jesus is inviting us to say, listen, do not allow your hope and passion to be wound up and around political power. We are a people that are designed to operate from the margins and to speak back into the system. Now now stay with me because that's not the whole of the picture, but that is the first point of the picture, is that Jesus' community shatters expectation by being purposefully on the margins. Jesus is not seeking political power, and he's not inviting his followers to do so either. But the second note is this. The second note is this. Jesus' community shatters expectations by being politically diverse and nuanced. Ah, politically diverse and nuanced. Let's look back. I, I just want you to consider in Jesus's selection of the apostles, there's something that that for those who lived in the first century and watched this community coming together that would have been stunning for them. And I want us to be appropriately stunned by it as well. We we read in verse 15 that he uh, he, he named a man Matthew to his 12. And what we know about Matthew in the context of the scriptures is that Matthew was the tax collector. Jesus actually came up to him at a tax collecting booth and said, I'm ready for you to follow me. And then, interestingly, at the end of verse 15, that same verse that starts with Matthew, it finishes with Simon, who was called the Zealot. Now, why is that so stunning? Well, because the Zealots were a group, as best we can tell, that was forged around 6 AD, and they they exerted some political power until about 73 AD. And the Zealots existed with a single purpose. They wanted to overthrow Rome and anyone that was associated with Rome. They believed that the proper call to being faithful and to being righteous was the call to being being aggressive politically seeking for revolution. They started riots in the streets. There was a subset, many think, a subset of the zealots were called the Sicarii and they were the dagger men. They would actually go into crowds and they would would stab Roman uh, soldiers or officials and they would start riots in the streets. They wanted to, to burn this thing down because it was so broken. Rome was so evil and oppressive. Yet Matthew, the tax collector, was of the mindset that we need to compromise and work with Rome, that that I can actually profit off of this relationship between the Jews and Roman. And so Matthew was a Jew that was employed by the Romans. Now do you see what Jesus is doing? In forging his community, he says, the political moment of the day, we, the Jewish people, are oppressed and overseen by this really powerful Roman government. And there's significant tension between the two of us. And he says, I'm going to select someone, not just from like center right and center left, but I want someone from way over here and way over here. And I want the two of you to travel with me and be a part of my leadership team from this point forward. (laughs) Uh, Out of scores of disciples, Jesus no doubt could have selected people that were all of the same mindset politically. He could have, but he didn't. He hardwired debate and disagreement into his nightly campfire. Ultimately, what I, what I believe Jesus is, is showing us, right? He's actually showing that fully forged disciples are disciples that come with all of their passions. Uh, they come with all of their convictions and they come to submit those to Jesus and to each other. And that when that happens, that becomes a uniquely distinct Christian community. It's stunning for me that Jesus is rejecting political simplicity. And, I, and brothers and sisters, we have to do the same. A rather prominent evangelical pastor, who, by the way, I have tremendous respect for, who loves the Bible, who has taught the Bible faithfully for years, made a comment that has gotten some public uh, kind of press in the recent weeks. He, he was on the phone with President Trump a couple of weeks ago, and he said, President Trump, every real and every true Christian is with you in this election., uh, uh, it pains my heart when I hear a story like that, especially from someone that i I respect and i 'm so thankful for his ministry but but yikes, Jesus resisted so vigorously being placed into political camps, and he actually forged a team that was politically diverse and nuanced. And I think we have to be careful about engaging in political simplicity. I've been so encouraged by the women of one of our house churches that made a commitment in this in this election cycle. They said, we're going to get together and we're going to watch every debate together, and we're going to spend some time just praying and processing. And they assumed at the outset that they would be somewhat in political agreement as I understand it, but what they've realized is that there's two that will likely be voting Republican, two that will be voting Democrat, and one that still feels somewhat undecided, and as I heard this story reported back to me about what was happening in this house church, I rejoiced. It's like, oh, that's beautiful. Because these women are living in harmony with one another. They're praying together. They're wrestling and dealing with biblical convictions that draw them to different conclusions. That is distinctly Christian. Rejecting political simplicity and stepping into nuance and diversity politically, all while laboring to be submitted to a king of a different kingdom. You see... If you love your Bible, if you love your Bible and you are devoted to it, you will be for the unborn. You will be for the protection of life in the places where it is most vulnerable. You will be. You will also be for the stewardship of the environment because God has given us authority to tend to this world that he has made and entrusted to us. You will be for that. You will be for family values and tending to the health of of families. And you will be for the poor and the immigrant and being able to care for them rightly. You see, you will be for equity for all, wanting to see justice done truly in our nation. If we love the Bible, we will be for those things. So what does that make us? What does that make us? Does it make us a republicrat? a demo publican like what are we no we're kingdom people that reject political simplicity that that step into political diversity we're not afraid of nuance We refuse this cultural rhetoric that settles down into camps and hurls grenades at one another, experiencing division and hatred. We are marked by love and grace and humility and listening and mutual respect and submission to one another out of respect to Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian community. And so brothers and sisters, listen to me. Let us be a kingdom people a kingdom people that realize that there is capacity to to vote righteously or sinfully for a republican or righteously or sinfully for a democrat uh, or or righteously or sinfully to vote right someone in because the issue is Have we been prayerful and submitted to Jesus and saturated with grace, and we're approaching this with a humility and an open-handedness saying, my hope is not bound up in political power? That if we come to it like that, I believe that we can can vote righteously in in one direction or another. Well, lastly, lastly, Jesus' community shatters expectations by being passionate and engaged by being passionate and engaged when jesus selected his 12 he didn't he didn't find the most compliant he found bold opinionated people peter i mean we know Peter's story, most of us, right? That he's constantly speaking out boldly. He has strong opinions, even at times rebuking Jesus himself. We know the sons of thunder who are quick to James and John, want to call down fire from heaven on people. And they are bold. And Jesus says that they're always kind of speaking out. They want to be at the right and left hand of Jesus. They're ready to rule. They want to lay hold of power. That they're, they're, They are energetic and strong. Bartholomew, whose name is also Nathaniel. Nathaniel, when he first is confronted with the story about Jesus, he boldly says, Well, what good could come from Nazareth? He doesn't hold back his opinion. Thomas in John uh, 14. Um, Yes, in the book of John, he's the one who says, let us go and die with him. He's boldly ready to lay his life down for Jesus. Yet also after Jesus' resurrection, he says, unless I put my hands in his, my finger in his hands, that I'm not gonna trust him. He's bold. He speaks his mind. And then you've got Simon the Zealot, who we've already touched, that Jesus, in saying, I'm inviting you into Christian community, is not looking for mealy-mouthed, compliant people. That's not what I'm saying. And that's not what this text would say. That's not how Jesus operated. He's looking for bold, passionate, opinionated people. When it comes time to finding leaders for the life of his community, he wants people that have conviction and have an opinion, and they share it boldly. But listen, we have to hold all three of these realities together simultaneously. That we ought to be a people of conviction and boldness that speak in this way, but not in a sense that we, we think that political power is going to deliver our hope. And not in a way that as we speak boldly our convictions, we then assume anyone that disagrees with those convictions is inherently broken or flawed or wrong before we ever hear them out. That we embrace nuance and diversity while holding convictions strongly. That, that Jesus is actually stepping into this space. And, and isn't this a difficult, if not explosive, equation? To call these people from diverse places in while wanting strongly opinionated people. This is an equation for eruption, is it not? Aren't we just set up to be divided among ourselves? Yes. Yes, we are. Unless, of course, Jesus is central. You see, the reason that this community became a brotherhood that traveled together and loved one another and served alongside of one another and bled and died together is because Jesus was central. A Jesus community shatters expectations because Jesus shatters expectations. He, he prayed all night and he came down from the mountain and did you hear the 12th name, the last one that he identified? Judas Iscariot. We know from other places in the Gospels that he knew what was in the heart of man, that he knew that there was one in the midst that was was going to betray him. And he selected him anyway. Why? Because Jesus shatters expectations. Listen, he did not come to baptize the world at the point of a sword. He came to be crucified to give his life as a ransom for many, to raise up a community that says it is through our weakness and our humility, our willingness to lay our lives down, not to fight to grasp power, but to lay power down, to be willing to operate from the margins, to be humble and to hear from one another, to be convicted and responding to the grace and the love of Jesus. He came to lay his life down to, to forge that sort of community that will live for a different sort of kingdom. You see, as the grace of what Jesus did on our behalf saturates our soul, it delivers us from the mess and the confusion and the hatred of this world into a different kingdom. We become kingdom people that look and sound and listen, speak differently You see, we start to say in response to what he has done for us, we will pick up our cross and follow him. We will gladly operate from the margins. Our hope will not be bound up in political power because our hope is situated eternally in a king and a kingdom, not in a president and a nation. And in that space, we are now free to engage in diversity of thought, engaging in nuance, not feeling like someone else's opinion is a threat to our souls or to our confidence or to our power or to our hope because we're situated in a different kingdom. We are, our minds and our hearts are situated in a different place. And so in this space, there's, there's safety and ability to have differing opinion and nuance. And faithful conversation as we're submitted to Jesus and submitted to one another. All while developing strong convictions that we will carry and that we will voice for the glory of God and for the good of others. Brothers and sisters, we want to go on a journey in this season to be citizens of a different kingdom. To embrace our identity truly and to recognize that a Jesus community is going to shatter expectations because it's focused on a different kingdom. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. So gracious God and Father, I pray that you would, even now, um, flood our hearts with joy and confidence that we are eternally citizens of a kingdom whose foundations will never be shaken. That we have a perfect king who is perfectly wise, who sees the end from the beginning and is sovereign, who is on the throne and is making decisions for our good. What freedom there is in that. I pray that we would not live like an anxious people wringing our hands and thinking that that political outcomes determine our joy and our hope, while also remaining engaged and passionate, that we would be different from the world in every way because of what you have done on our behalf. Help us to be a community marked by a distinct unity and grace and humility through this season. And the way that we continue to have tough conversations. And the way that we continue to to foster and facilitate a path forward. Lord, by your grace, by the power of your spirit, would you make that true for us as a family. For your glory, God. For our joy. We're begging it. In Jesus' name. Amen. And amen.